Um, we've been working our way through uh, one Kings, um, and that we've been hearing about King Solomon. Um, Solomon was about a thousand years before Jesus, um, and in the passage that we um, heard last week, um, the kingdom had become more um, divided, well, and Solomon's heart was more divided. He wasn't following um, God anymore. Um, and so we're going to read from 1 Kings 11 just now, just just the last bit of chapter 11. Um, in verse 43, um, then I'll read from 1 Kings 12. But Tim's preaching today and he's actually going to be preaching from 1 Kings 13. So we'll read 1 Kings 12. It'll give us the background of where we're up to and then we'll be hearing from 1 Kings 13 today. Okay, so turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 43. Solomon, he died. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make your yoke But make your yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips and I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said. Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice he'd been given by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out 
Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labour, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. We'll just go on to verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Thank you. I, I, I kept reading. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. So keep your Bible open. Um, as Ruth said, we're going to be focusing in on chapter 13. We're going to keep reading chapter 13 together. Um, I've decided to focus there for two reasons. Because, first of all, the story is so strange and curious. It's going to give us tons of questions, and that makes it really engaging. As we read it, in chapter 13, you'll find it's very enigmatic. Two of the main characters have no name. There's supernatural stuff that goes on. There's a lion and a donkey that get along as friends. And as I said, heaps of questions will come, and that'll get us really buzzing. Um, but the second reason I want to focus on it... So the first is just it's fun, okay? It's a fun, great, ripping story. The second reason, though, is that all the strange and curi curious details actually come together to impress on us an unforgettable message. And one that should change how you set up your day tomorrow morning as you have your wheat bix. So here's a hook, a catchphrase for us. Today is about wheat bix and the word of the Lord. So wheat bix, because wheat bix is a, uh, a reminder of the start of our day, and it gives us a little bit of a lens onto how we do set up our day. How do we start our day? And how seriously, at that moment as we approach the day, we take the word of the Lord. Because if we are setting up our day around the word of the Lord, we are more likely to be faithful to him as we meet challenges as they come our way through the day and our days. We are more likely to be able to discern the truth in a world full of lies. And we are less likely to actually fall for those lies. So that's coming up. Stay with us, chapter 13, but first let me just make two brief comments on chapter 12 that Ruth read for us. Um, the first is, we, are, we just read the moment that the kingdom of Israel splits in two, and that's because King Solomon, we saw him, he started to become unfaithful to the Lord, and the Lord came to him and said, the kingdom will be torn apart 
one tribe will stay with you in Judah. Um, The rest of the tribes will go to a servant of yours um, in the north. Uh, And the catalyst, as we saw, was um, Solomon's son Rehoboam, when after Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes the throne, uh, the group of people from the north come down and they say, your father has pushed and pushed and pushed us and taxed us, We we need some relief. And we saw that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, um, was cruel and arrogant. He doubled their pain, and so they break away. And they rally around uh, a leader, Jeroboam. So that's the second thing to note from chapter 12 that we just read, is they rally around Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam, yeah, so it's confusing. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. So I've got that on the screen for you. Rehoboam's the king in the south of Judah, and Jeroboam is a servant of Solomon, and he sets up the kingdom in Israel. Now, the word of the Lord had actually come to Jeroboam that this would take place, but we saw that Jeroboam gets politically paranoid and worried that his people might keep going across the border. So you can see the border there, down into Jerusalem, to worship there, and that might cost him politically. And so he sets up his own form of religion. Do you remember this line? We read it. If these people go up to offer sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll give their allegiance to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to the king Rehoboam. So that's where we're at as we come into chapter 13 of the story. So open up your Bibles, chapter 13. What I'll do, uh, remember this is all about Weet-Bix and the Word of the Lord. So I'll read, I'll read sections of it together, you read along, and we'll make some comments along the way and see how this all pulls together. Okay, scene number one, chapter 13, verse one. By the Word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. So, we're introduced to an unnamed man. Here's our first character who is unnamed, and he's a man that comes from the southern part um, of the region, and he's a man of God from Judah. So it's a bit like who's coming to lunch. You don't know who this actual person is. But um, the reason, and you'll see that later, he's contrasted with another character. We'll meet him, who is also unnamed. It might be a little bit refreshing after all the different big names that you get in Kings, those big sort of Hebraic names, Hebrew names. So it's refreshing to just have an unnamed man from Judah. Um, But you'll see that he comes from Judah to Bethel. The whole reason I think that we don't actually hear the name of the person is so that we can focus on the geographic regions that these people come from. We've got an unnamed man from Judah who is going from Judah, which houses the the correct site of worship, Jerusalem, into the northern region, Bethel, where Jeroboam has set up uh, an alternate temple-type thing and arrangement. 
Um, and at the very moment that Jeroboam is standing by the altar making an offering, it seems like he's standing there like Solomon did with a big dedication going on. You can imagine this man comes through the crowd, makes his way up to the front and yells out in front of everybody, in front of Jeroboam, that this altar is going to be pulled down and destroyed. And he declares that God is going to raise up someone from David's line in Judah, even names him Josiah, who will destroy and destroy in a way that will burn all the priests' bones on this altar. That's pretty full on. And that's a bit of an oopsie for Jeroboam, because at this very moment, he does appear to be acting like a priest with this false um, worship site. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. The same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. So here's the strange and curious things here. You, you kind of have two signs that God gives to Jeroboam. And they're two signs to point to a greater tragedy that is going to happen. So God, in his mercy, is giving a very dramatic and even painful sign to Jeroboam to get his attention and wake him up. And it seems like this, the, the very moment that his hand shrivels up is the very moment that he points his finger. Um, and the altar may well split at the same time. So it's very dramatic, quite personal to Jeroboam as well, and painful. But he's getting two signs. The altar, this massive altar he's created, splits, and even his own hand paralyzes and withers. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Then the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. So Jeroboam's obviously very regretful that he'd uh, put his hand out like this at the, the man of God and it's all been withered and he asked that his hand would be restored and it is graciously restored but it makes you wonder at this point okay if he's if he's regretful for what he did with his finger pointing out his hand is he going to now repent of all of this false uh, religion that he has set up surely he has to let's keep going verse 7 the king said to the man of god Come home with me for a meal, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, You must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. So here, you've got uh, what's well, strange. You don't see Jeroboam do any of the typical signs of repentance. 
Usually in the Old Testament, if someone's repenting, they will put on sackcloth and ashes, tear their clothes. Uh, Instead, he invites the man of God home for a meal. That might seem innocuous, but usually, you're laughing, Peter, usually in in ancient cultures, especially in political arrangements, if you're having a meal with political people, you are creating a treaty or a bond. So is Jeroboam actually asking this man to come back and maybe we could negotiate a bit, you know, my hand's back, but maybe I could persuade you with some rewards and gifts and and you could endorse, as a man of God, you could endorse this new religious setup that I've got. So that's scene one, folks. That's scene one of chapter 13. And scene one gives us a picture uh, before us that the word of the Lord, whatever he says, comes to pass. So we must listen to him. Jeroboam had been told by God that he would actually have a kingdom. And all if he remained faithful to God, he would have a lasting dynasty. And that has come to pass in part. He has received a kingdom. But now the word of the Lord is coming to pass because he has started to reject God and not follow in his ways. The Lord is coming to him and announcing that his false religion and even his own dynasty will be destroyed. Surely this is a a time where God is calling Jeroboam to listen to him and repent. Jeroboam shows for us that we as humans cannot outrun the word of God. Let us not think that we can ignore it and outrun the word of the Lord. It always comes to pass. You cannot ignore God and think you will avoid the consequences. Especially as God has announced and spoken to us clearly beforehand. In the New Testament... Jesus is given by God as the final and authoritative word of the Lord. Before his disciples, a voice from heaven, God from heaven, announces that Jesus is the one whom the Father loves and is well pleased and we are to listen to him. It's really laughable when you think about it that Jeroboam actually pointed his finger out Uh, to the man of God delivering the word to try and restrain him. Did you you remember? Arrest him. Many people who have power will try to cancel and restrain the word of God. And we're seeing more and more of that in Australia, aren't we, with the cancel culture, Um, particularly if you want to stand up and proclaim anything about God or ethics in a public way ethics that flow from the word of God, then you most likely will be cancelled. One of the most recent high-profile examples was a CEO down in Melbourne. Um, You might remember late last year, Andrew Thornburn. And he was was, um, appointed to be the CEO of Essendon and then someone released on Twitter that uh, Andrew Thornburn actually attends a church that teaches conservative ethics based on the Bible 
um, and is part of the board there. So that in 24 hours, Twittersphere and the media uh, went to town on him and the Essendon Football Club stood him down saying, in no way do we want to associate with a man like that. So we're seeing more and more of the cancel culture, cancelling God's word. But I want to zero in on more subtle ways that we might individually try to restrain or drown out God's word. It's easy to cancel God's word. All we have to do is get up tomorrow morning and as we have our wheat picks, just think about what we want to think about. Just concentrate on our own desires. It's easy. And we've probably got lots of worries. It's easy to fret about them and just simply start planning and strategizing how we will go about achieving what we want to achieve. Some of the signs that show us that we are becoming more deaf to God's word um, and self-reliant is that we may, we may subtly start setting up how we worship God in our own way. When we think of the basic things that uh, the New Testament calls us as the church to do that are foundational, that God gives us to worship, it's things like gathering together regularly as his people to encourage one another and sit under his word. To personally be reading God's word and absorbing that day in, day out. To be taking all of our concerns and requests before the Lord in prayer. But has it, is it for some of us that we have started doing those basic things and just shifting them in a way that uh, makes it more comfortable for us and we can be involved in more things that we feel will soothe us and provide the help that we need? Are we starting to subtly set up our own religion? And so you think um, one of our great concerns here at the Lakes is that we do see more and more, both in our culture and it gets expressed in our church. Have I turned off? Yeah, okay. As it gets expressed in our church, we are reflecting more and more of the culture where church is, is not a main game thing in order to create structures around us so that we listen carefully to the Lord. Um, our live stream has been great, but still we have many people who used to come regularly who opt to just sit at home and, and watch live stream. Now, I know that we can have complex circumstances about this, but I want to challenge us all. We are very good at coming up with excuses that, talk, that we self-talk to ourselves that we have unique circumstances. And so... Let us test our hearts and ask ourselves, as we, as we look at the structures around us and do we actively keep worshipping God the way he's called us to worship, coming to church regularly, reading his word, praying, if that has started to disappear for you, um, is it that maybe we've just got a little bit apathetic with some things? Or... Um, let us challenge our hearts. Is there something darker going on where we, where we are subtly 
setting up in a way that we don't have God's word around us. It sounds like I'm... So, Bob's asking for more sound. I'm definitely on, yeah. Yeah. Did you hear that point? Yep, great. Yeah. So, let me ask all of us, are we listening to the Word of God? Do we have structures around us where we actively listen and hear God's Word? Think of the next generation. Uh, Pete raised for a Psalm 78. For, for many of our families, think of your young people and that beautiful line in the Psalm that says, imagine beyond them and their kids. Are, they go- are, are those kids going to see that their dads love the Lord and put him first, that their mums pray and rely on the Lord? Are we going to pass that on to that generation and then the next generation so that they too, even imagining the kids amongst us who are not yet born, can listen to the word of the Lord? If only Jeroboam had asked, what is God teaching me now? As uh, God confronted him. Um, If we don't reflect often ourselves on our circumstances with God's word, what is God teaching me now? Asking that question, it it may be that we have stopped listening to the word of the Lord. All right, second scene, uh, picking it up at verse 11. Verse 11. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel, whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So here we meet our second unnamed person. So he's uh, not named, but we hear where he's from. He's an old prophet from Bethel. And it sounds like his sons have been at the site of Jeroboam's big festival. And they've run home after seeing the altar split and Jeroboam's hand wither. They've run home and said, Hey, Dad... You'll never guess what happened today. And this is the first hint, I think, in these few verses that something is dubious about this old prophet from Bethel. He's from Bethel. Bethel is the prime site that Jeroboam has set up his false religion. And his sons, even though this man is classified as old, maybe that's why he wasn't quite at the festival with Jeroboam, but his sons definitely were there. And they're coming back and they're ready to report everything that happened to their dad. The other strange thing in this story is, why does he go after the man of God? All of a sudden, he has his own urgency to chase after this man of God. And a further curious thing is that when he does catch up to the man of God, the man of God from Judah is under a tree, which we'll see in the next section, is clearly on the side of Bethel. So the man from Judah, he's the guy from the south who went up into Bethel and had this urgent call from God to proclaim something and then get out, had one job to do and then get out, doesn't seem to have got out as quickly as he should. And if you remember the map, 
um, you can see that Bethel is not far away from Jerusalem, uh, crossing the border. It doesn't take long to get over there. So why is he at this tree at Bethel, having not yet crossed the border? Let's keep reading, verse 15. So the prophet said to him, Come home with me and eat. So the old prophet from the north has caught up. Come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink with you in this place. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. So a few comments on that. Um, we see that the man from Judah, the man from the south, repeats the word of the Lord. So this is the second time as we read this that we've heard this urgent warning from God to proclaim the message and do not dally, do not linger, get out and go back home. One job and get out. And then, strangely, the old man, the old prophet, gives a message that just totally contradicts this urgent message. Totally contradicts. Uh, why does this man from Judah, the guy from the south, believe this lie so easily? That's curious, too, as you read the story. He's sent in to proclaim that this false religion is doomed. So why doesn't he raise a whole bunch of questions when this old prophet from Bethel comes? Why isn't he suspicious? Suspicious of a prophet from Bethel. Suspicious of a prophet from Bethel that has been involved with Jeroboam. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cr now, as we get into this, this is the most strange stuff and curious stuff, okay? As he brought him back, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, this is what the Lord says, you have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. So as I said, this is the most quirky part of the story. Um, the dodgy prophet, the dodgy old prophet, is suddenly overwhelmed by God and delivers a direct message to the man from Judah, um, saying he has defied the word of the Lord. And because he has defied it, he will not make it home, and he will die an unpleasant death. And then we see this random, random killing where a lion jumps the man from Judah 
and doesn't eat him, doesn't maul him, uh, does just enough to kill him and then sits on the side of the road next to the body, next to the donkey. And it's so random and strange that people that walk by go, this is very, very odd. And they run into town and they tell everyone about it. So that's the end of scene number two. It's crazy stuff, isn't it? Scene number two paints for us a picture of a man who easily swallowed a lie because he failed to watch his life and doctrine closely. The man from Judah, he, he had gone in strong to confront Jeroboam. Uh, as we reflected on that, it must have been scary, it's risky. Um, Jeroboam is politically paranoid. So the man from Judah must have been full of adrenaline, mustering himself, going up, delivers the word of the Lord. Um, but why... Now on his way out, does he um, easily swallow a lie? I think the text actually suggests that the man stopped guarding himself. Uh, stopped watching his life and doctrine closely. So we see that he stopped at a tree. Um, as we pointed out, he's resting at a tree on the wrong side of the border. He's, he's meant to get out, but he's stopping on the Bethel side of the border. He had an urgent message and the word of the Lord had an urgency about getting out. So what's going on in his mind? You can imagine that after that, that big confrontation, he feels a little exhausted and might start uh, thinking to himself, I need a rest. Um, and you can imagine that he, 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 rather than just running across the border, he pulls up, he, he has a rest and is it at that point that he becomes a little vulnerable, vulnerable to temptation? Because he, he hasn't followed through on the little details of the message from God, the directions from God. You can imagine that he's sitting at the tree and he starts thinking about these gifts that Jeroboam had offered him. And he starts fantasizing, well, maybe, if only it could have worked out that way. If only I could maybe endorse Jeroboam and then I'd be, you know, well cushioned in life. Um, has he created a moment not unlike Lot's wife, who after hearing that God is going to judge this place, dallies, looks back, lingers and allows longings to arise and create distorted desires within him. Now, I can imagine all that taking place for him um, because it's all too human and it seems to be the same pattern that you see of people who dally after being delivered a message from God. Um, one of my favourite reading pastimes is reading books on the physiology, physiology and psychology of warfare and combat and as I read these books, often the experts will cite Napoleon, the great uh, war strategist. And Napoleon is known for saying, the moment of greatest vulnerability is the immediate moments after victory. And the experts will talk about the reason why is that 
Um, when you go to war and combat, you're all primed up with adrenaline, you're ready, um, your system is um, loaded to act and your mind is awoken for mental alertness. That's all the chemicals in our body does that. And so you go in, but then immediately after a, a victory, you relax and your body will drain out of all that. And they will look at different scenarios, both in the army and even in the um, police force, and they'll talk about uh, situations like you can, have, you can have officers, if they want to take a suspect down and they plan it, they, they will plan it when the suspect is least expecting, when he doesn't have any adrenaline, when he's not primed, when his state of arousal is low. And so you've got the advantage of the police force who are primed, ready, adrenalised, they go in, they get the suspects unaware, they grab him, put him into the back of the car. But then they relax. They relax and think, whew, that's over. Meanwhile, the suspect in the back of the car, he starts priming up with adrenaline going, well, hey, hang on a sec, this means I'm going to jail. This might be my last attempt. And so they get to the station, the, the, the police force in a relaxed state open the door and meet a suspect who is all amped up and absolutely goes berserk and is often able to overwhelm them. And they've lost out. Same with army battles. Um, you can win a war, go to retreat, a smaller depleted force after the win comes back and gets you in a state of relax. And even though they've got less people and less power, they've actually, they actually win the battle. Hence Napoleon, the moment of the greatest vulnerability is the immediate moment's after victory. And so one of the ways that um, police force and armies now um, try to mitigate against that is that they will train and drill their soldiers and, and police force to do a series of, a, of tasks, deliberate tasks after the battle in order to keep themselves alert and aroused and uh, not relaxing prematurely. Paul to Timothy in the New Testament, says to train like a soldier, to train like an athlete and to watch our life and doctrine closely. Because it is a war. It's a war to be faithful, to keep going, to persevere to the end. And in Paul's letters to Timothy, he is constantly warning about the lies that exist in the world, um, the devil's schemes and the, the way to avoid them, the way to persevere, the way to uh, sort out truth from lies, the way to avoid the devil's traps and flee from distorted desires is to stay close and watch closely the word of the Lord. So let me read something else that Paul says to Timothy. After warning of all this, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let me ask you, are you susceptible, are we susceptible because we do not 
watch our life and doctrine closely? Are we vulnerable to temptation, gullible to believing lies and falling for half-truths? simply because we don't have the structures around us where we are watching and guarding our life closely. All it takes is someone who looks authoritative with a white shirt or a suit to say something um, and it seems right, so we run after it. Tomorrow morning, as we have our wheat bix, um, remember and know that the whole human race of which we're a part of has been deceived by the devil since the beginning. Romans 1.25 says that we've all exchanged the truth for a lie. And so the lie is that we know best. So we will get up tomorrow morning thinking we know best. And the truth is that we're not clever enough to sort out truth from lies on our own. Let's move on to scene number three. This is our final scene. Number three, final scene, and it kicks off at verse 26. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him, and the word of the Lord had, as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me, and they did so. Then they went out and found the body lying on the road where the donkey and the lion were standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey, so the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, and he said, Alas, my brother! After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against, against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. Okay, a couple of uh, comments. There's your strange thing of the donkey and the lion, <laughs> peacefully next to each other. Uh, but it serves as a wake-up call for the old prophet. He goes and sees this and he declares, wow, the word of the Lord certainly comes true. So much so that he can see now that the word of the Lord declared against Jeroboam will most certainly come true in verse 32. Now our narrator um, uses the dodgy prophet to underline that the word of the Lord comes true and then contrasts the dodgy prophet's response where he turns around and agrees with Jeroboam who after all that he has gone through does not repent from his evil ways. So our final scene has this picture for us that the kingdom of God under the Messiah will prevail. 
Jeroboam cut himself off from the Lord. And at one level, it started off politically. But deep down, you see that he does not want people to go to Jerusalem and then get enamored with all that Jerusalem and the promises through Rehoboam's line, the other guy, Rehoboam's line, which points back to the Davidic promise of the Messiah. Um, He has cut himself off from God's kingdom promise that God's appointed Messiah will rule not just a small kingdom, but the entire world forever. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he sees that with Jesus' resurrection, as he has witnessed it, this is the sign that God's kingdom prevails. Even other political groups who have tried to cancel Jesus and kill him, death could not hold him down. So Peter says, after witnessing the resurrection, it's just like in the Old Testament in a psalm that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And people hearing it say, in light of this, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, that's us, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So tomorrow morning, as we have our wheat fix, um, we who have trusted and called upon the Lord know that his word comes to pass so we can have confidence that we are forgiven and will be saved from this corrupt generation. Tomorrow morning, as you have your wheat fix, lean into that. Remember that each day. Watch your life closely in the little things and the big things, leaning on the word of the Lord. Because Jesus is alive, he has spoken, let us listen to him, because the most insane thing you or I could do tomorrow morning as we have our wheat fix is to ignore the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, in your grace, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who has spoken spoken and explained to us his death and that we can have complete forgiveness through him. I pray that all of us will be ever more conscious by your spirit, drive us to listen to your word closely and watch our lives closely. Preserve us to the end. Preserve our kids and preserve the next generation beyond them. May we keep listening to you. Amen.